0: Hello and welcome to episode number we don't have a number because this is going up later on which is different which is good Armin show podcast we are in the place to be on this episode we have an author someone I know of a long time I'm gonna do an introduction because I know of this individual for like a decade so this is Scott H Young welcome to the show by the way thank you thank you you know it now here's the author of this book ultra learning we'll get to that in a minute but how do I know of Scott H Young in the first place I was writing on my website Timeless Information, like 2008, 9, 10, 11. He's writing on Scott slash blog. Same time, I think, yeah, maybe earlier. Mm-hmm. Onward to this day. And stuff that makes sense to me, which is not common. Most of the things I see on the internet, they just don't I don't know what I'm looking at on Instagram <laughs> or most them, I just don't know what I'm looking at. It's great. I'm sure it's great. I don't I, I don't connect with it. I like like text and Are we growing? Mm. What am I getting out of this? How do I? So that's the category. And then articles across a variety of things. One of the most notable items is the MIT challenge that was once done. Actually, I'd like to discuss that. So you did that. Sure. You did a curriculum online years before. It's now online courses are becoming more and more popular in Mm. MOOCs. Yeah, yeah. Whatever that is, (laughs) courses online. Are becoming more and more popular. How do you feel now about it? Years later, your computer science learning that you did.
1: Sure, sure. So I'll just explain briefly what um, what the MIT challenge was. Mm-hmm. But it was a project that I took on in 2011. So I'm thinking back; that's like about eight years ago now, which uh, yeah. makes me feel very old, but because uh, it feels like yesterday. But it right. was right after I graduated from university, and at the time, I had been kind of contemplating do I want to go back to school? Because I'd studied business and I had gone into business thinking I want to be an entrepreneur. I should therefore study business. And I went and studied business and I realized, hey, actually most of these classes are how to be a middle manager in a large corporation. They're not really about starting a business at all. And I felt a little bit bad about that because I like doing stuff online. I was already writing online. I was already working with technology. And I felt, you know what? I should have studied. I should have studied computer science. I had a little bit of that kind of Uh, a little bit of regret and so I was thinking about well should I go back and study again and I was even looking into some programs and it just seemed like you know what I've just spent a lot of time in school I don't really want to do it again even though I do kind of feel like I wish I had had gone back and studied something differently and around that time I stumbled across a class posted by MIT on their open courseware website so, open courseware is a bit of a precursor to what you were saying, MOOCs, the massively open online courses like Coursera and Udacity and uh, EdX and and all of these platforms. Mm-hmm. In that, it was not really courses. the The idea of the open courseware was not, "Hey, here's a course that we've made for an online audience." It was let's just throw up some cameras in an actual MIT class, record it, upload the PDFs of the actual science solutions and like, you know, people can do what they want with it. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't really, how do we optimize this for online? But like, hey, maybe we can just post some of our stuff we're already doing for our actual MIT students. And actually, I love that because, you know, getting an MIT education is just some sort of like fantasy, you know, going to a really top school and learning from the best professors and, being at the cutting edge and just that was something that really appealed to me. I didn't go to a top school like that. I couldn't afford a school like MIT. I'm Canadian. So you know mm-hmm. getting the getting getting like an international student um, tuition and whatnot in, in MIT just was out of the question. And mm-hmm. so this was something that really appealed to me. And I took one of these classes and I was like, wow, you know, this is actually much better than most of the classes I paid for when I actually went to school. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that kind of initial experience was like, well, wait a minute, you know, if if you can do a class, mm. why not try to do a degree? Well, Why not try to do something different? And that interested me a lot more than going back to school. Well, for one, it was a very low cost. All I would have to pay for was some used textbooks. And right. second, I could do it the way I wanted to do it. So, I could do something that was sort of fun and interesting. And I would add to that at the time when I was searching around, I was like, well, do people do this? Is this something people have done before? And I couldn't see any examples. And I was like, why has no one done this before? And so at at the time when I was doing it, it's funny, I'm talking about it eight years later as it being kind of an unusual project. But when I did it at the time, I really thought, well, this is the future. This is what everyone's going to be doing. How cool would it be to be the first person to do this? And so, um I did this project that I called the MIT challenge. and and I even called it the MIT Challenge because I thought, you know, other people might try to do the same thing, and I, I'd like to come up with a format. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, learning from online materials, MIT posts is not the same as attending MIT as uh, as you know, and any any MIT student will point out. However, yeah. I think if you make some simplifications, so if you make up for the fact that the material isn't always complete and is always perfect, you can actually get really close. And that was really what I was trying to do uh, with the MIT challenge. So that was a project I took on in 2011, which, uh, which I did over a year of learning MIT's uh, undergraduate computer science curriculum. Now, if I look back and especially after having written this book right here, there is a lot of things I would have changed about that approach to that project just based on what I know now about learning and what I know now about um, what I know now about the application of skills. So for instance, uh, although I'm very happy about how I did the project, Um, one of my ideas was that, well, getting an MIT education would be like the best way to become a good programmer. Mm -hmm. But now that I've gone through it, I feel like it's the best way perhaps to understand computer science deeply. But that's somewhat different than becoming a programmer. I did do a lot of programming, but there were tons of classes that had no programming. And if I were to like, you know, hey, I want to, build web apps, I would maybe build a different curriculum around it. But those are mostly nitpicks. I still feel really good about the project and I'm still really glad about the time I spent doing it. And I'm happy that, you know, it continues to encourage other people to pursue that kind of self-education today.
0: It's a wonderful feature. I saw a book yesterday about designing your own web app. Maybe that book would be more specific to that than even the the courses. that Yeah,
1: played. yeah. Well, there's lots of stuff you can do, like really learning any subject is not just about learning a degree. It's about, you know, how do you get the skills that you want to acquire? And that's really what I tried to write about in this book is not just how can you, you know, get an education online, but really how do you learn skills that are important to you in your life?
0: Mm -hmm. Now, one thing I want to check is when you were younger early on, Mm -hmm. did you see a difference between you and the person next to you?
1: Were they not as interested in learning? Was there a clear like what what is going on here? You know, it's funny. Um, so I did I did feel like I was a, a good student in school, but I didn't grow up in like I, I grew up in a small town in uh, northern Canada, and so I didn't have access to you know the top schools. Like, it's not like I went to some elite you know private school or something and had special tutoring and access to all these great resources it was a you know pretty humdrum school and it there was nothing really particularly special about my my educational experience i think what got me interested in learning was was a more practical consideration that around the time i was 15 i got this idea that i wanted to Uh, start my own business and I wanted to run a business and that kind of pushed me to learn a lot of things outside of the school system and Mm -hmm. really kind of started me on this idea that if you can learn things well, like if you are able to acquire skills in an efficient and effective manner, Mm -hmm. it's just like a superpower for everything else you want to do in life. So if you know the right way to learn programming, to teach yourself programming or teach yourself a foreign language or teach yourself, you know, marketing or business or all these kinds of things, then that gives you an ability to be like, hey, I don't know how to do this right now, but this is the way that you would go about it. So I think those practical considerations of, well, I wanted to start a business and it kind of went through various um, iterations really motivated me. And I'm sure it it has for you as well with, you know, having your podcast and your blog and your other things that you've done, that you have that experience where, you know, it's different from school where you're like, okay, I need to study this to pass this exam and get good grades. But I actually want to do this thing. I really care about it, and I don't know how to do it yet. And so examining that process was a big part of what what inspired me, especially early on.
0: Yeah, that's true. It is a nice feature when it's not part of a system or contextually set. You're doing your thing, and there is variety you can bring to it. I really like that part Mm -hmm. because if it's just already set, then what's the point of the person joining in? It's already set, but some people like that uh, Mm -hmm. where it's already set up with no variation. Now, that's quite cool. Uh, let's get into this wonderful book. Now, sure. I want to point out, ultra learning. I am being more direct in my descriptions about things. So, at first, when I am reading, right, some of it seems more like because I'm usually I'm reading uh, like uh, science research books. That's mostly what mm-hmm. I'm reading. So I'm like, it's uh, it's more describing what to do, and I'm like used to like some facts or some different way. But then it took a second reading. That's the thing. Some of the paragraphs you're looking at, you're like, "Mm." and then you look at a second reading and you remember, it reminds me of the times when I learned key things. This is what I had to do. It takes you back into this book actually gets you into the mode of it's time to learn things. Let's advance. So that's a Mm -hmm. nice feature. It's, I didn't see that at first. So then it takes you back to like, Oh, if I want to do heavy recall, for example, uh, that'll be way more valuable, and it makes sense. they don 't do that in school systems, but uh the challenge is worth it. So it has a nice feature of bringing you back into that learning space that i I slightly forgot about, and i 'm sure other people <laughs> if they weren't in there already, this would get them to it. yeah this nice feature of that mm-hmm. Now, when you wrote it, mm-hmm. why did you call it ultra learning versus learning? Learning
1: <laughs> well, on well, for one, I think that uh, ultra learning is perhaps a better title for a book than just yeah, learning, yeah. Yeah. but it was a concept <laughs> as well. No, the but it, you, you make a good point, but the mm-hmm. book is really about learning. But I would say that, um, how I got into writing this book was encountering people who had taken on like kind of interesting, sort of crazy, um, self directed learning projects. So in the book, I define this concept, ultra learning, to be people who take on or sorry projects that are both self-directed and particularly aggressive so it's just sort of an overlap of these two features and you'll read in the book as I I do in the opening chapter I give tons of examples of people who have taken on like kind of well that sounds like a crazy sort of interesting project and the the sort of motivation for me to write this book and as an angle for writing the book rather than as you said just calling it learning or the science of learning or something was that I felt like this approach to doing things and it is an approach it's not just You know this is not just what everyone does let's say right learning is that a lot of people they mostly do their learning in sort of formal context in school so that wouldn't be quite as self-directed and then a lot of people don't learn things in this kind of aggressive focus on effectiveness they're often you know what's fun they dabble a little bit and then they get a little better over time and this kind of thing and so for me i wanted to explore what do people do when they're really focused on how do i get sort of a result and they're sort of not caught up by some of the things that we normally do where well i'm afraid to do that or that's frustrating or that's difficult and so when i did the research for the book i found all these fascinating stories like nigel richards who uh, won the french World Scrabble championship without speaking french or eric barone who uh, did all the music art programming, et cetera, for a video game, and it ended up selling millions of copies. Or Roger Craig, who built an algorithm to study Jeopardy trivia and one hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I, I, I liked these really big dramatic stories for it and using them as a lens for viewing the ordinary learning that we're doing. Because one of the things I found is I digged into a lot of the science and the research that the people who are doing these ultra learning projects have just happened to stumble upon. These are all the right combinations you need to have in place to learn really effectively. And so for ordinary people, uh, what one of the things you, you you talked about, like it puts you in the learning mindset is that A lot of people I talked to after they read the book were like hey you know what this is actually what I was doing when I was learning something well in the past so they think about the time that they really got into dancing or they really got into photography or they you know what hey that was when I was doing this I was doing all those things you were talking about and so my goal here is not to present ultra learning as some mysterious thing but to present it as this is a way of distilling what works in the things that you've done in the past and refining it in a way so you can apply it to the places that maybe it hasn't worked out for you or the things that you're afraid that it might not work out for you in the future. So really, this was a process of how do you distill and refine what is the essence of learning well. And I think looking at through the lens of ultra learners, looking at through the lens of people who have taken on really audacious projects is often an interesting lens because, you know, to do these kinds of accomplishments, these people must have been doing something right. And that's indeed kind of what I found. Mm hmm. This is true, it really does
0: put you in that space so anybody that actually looked at it would start to, if they didn't learn much before in specific categories, which I can't really picture, they'd get into that zone in some form. And if they did, this makes you start thinking, okay, I'm ready to go, let's go do it, which is yeah. nice. One theme I noticed throughout the book, which I liked a lot, is a broad view. Uh, you talked about meta-learning, you talked about how uh, individuals that were experts in their field, when they look at something They don't just look at the question like, this is the detail of the physics problem, but what kind of problem is it? Bigger picture. Can you speak about the broad view that brings, it's almost like the broad view automatically you're learning as you're doing it.
1: Yeah, so one of the things I found when I was discussing the research is that uh, how you think about problems, so you're referencing this um, important research that was done by ooh, I'm not sure that this one was done by Michelin Chi, but I, I will say that right now, although I might have to check my citation after. Mm-hmm. But the uh the research was studying um the differences in how physics students, so people who are in undergraduate physics versus physics professors or people who are experts, approach physics problems. And one of the observations was that the students tend to look at surface features of the problem. So they will like, does this involve a ramp or a pulley? Whereas the experts see past that and say, oh, this is a conservation of energy problem or this problem is about conserving momentum. And so they're naturally working on a deeper set of principles. And one of the things, you know, you mentioned which I brought up in the book, is that we'd all like to think in terms of principles. But a lot of the stuff that I dug through in the research is that it's actually quite hard to do that, particularly in the beginning, that when you start learning a subject, I can tell you what the principle is. So you can do show up to day one physics class and I can say, well, conservation of energy. But it takes a lot of skill and a lot of experience to be able to see that from the problems that, ah, this is a conservation of energy problem. The more natural thing is this is a pulley problem or this is a ramp problem. And so the key here is that, Um, one of the things that I found is that there's this concept called chunking. So one of the theories of expertise is that what is happening that allows an expert to see in terms of principles is that they are acquiring more and more patterns so that they are seeing more and more patterns through examples, through working with it, through learning more. They're acquiring more and more patterns in their sort of mental database. And as they see more patterns, they're literally able to see things about a problem that a novice can't see. So the classic studies of this were done with uh, chess experts. So chess grandmasters versus people who didn't know chess very well. And the way this chunking idea came about is that you give people a chess board and you put the pieces down from some chess position. And you ask them, okay, I'm going to show you this chess position, and then I'm going to take it away. Can you recreate the chess position? And the chess novices were putting on the pieces basically one at a time, whereas the chess grandmasters weren't doing that. They were putting on whole patterns. Well, okay, so... There was actually a fork here between the knight and this one, so I can put those down all at once. And, and this one's here, and they're putting them down in larger chunks. And so what they were discovering there is that it's interesting that the chess grandmasters seem to have a much better recall ability of chess positions. But an interesting twist of that is that if you just randomize the chessboard, so these are not chess positions that result from actual play, it's just, you know, kings up here, pawns up over there, something that would never happen in a real chess game. The Mm -hmm. grandmasters are no better at remembering this than the novices. So what it's showing is that by exposure to real situations, to real problems, you're building up this library of patterns. And so I talk about that a lot in the book.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, you start to build like, oh, this is the form that this takes, Mm -hmm. this is this kind of defense or offense. It's a nice feature one thing i took into account along the way was if you use the various principles that you describe it would be too efficient can you speak to how why is it not built into the default school system because what are the reasons right. why it might not be the case? Right. Because this seems so you're really- you're
1: referencing, yeah, you're referencing the fact that in, in the book I have um I divided it into nine principles of um, ultra learning. And they really are principles of learning generally, but they're things that the ultra learners that I covered really exploit particularly well. And I think, you know, I don't want to say this list is exhaustive, but I think it's a pretty good starting point yeah. that if you were able to take each of these little dials and tweak them to be more efficient for your learning, you would learn a lot more quickly, a lot more efficiently um a lot more directly than you would if you were you know if some of those dials are misplaced so you were speaking about the school system and part of it is i don't want to say that my book is the antidote to our educational woes because The truth is, I think a lot of the problems with how we teach things in school are based on our concept of what schools are trying to do and what they are meant for. And so it's really hard to fix schools with also keeping those same kind of notions of what a school is supposed to do intact. So I often prefer the apprenticeship model to the classroom model for learning things. And we do still have some apprenticeships but obviously the outcome of apprenticeship looks very different from the outcome of taking let's say a bachelor degree and so I think there's some inertia that you know schools are doing maybe in sort of a locally optimal way of doing it based on all the constraints around the institution but you as a learner don't have those same constraints and so that's why I'm often advocating people to think outside of the normal a formal education system to mm-hmm. alternative ways of doing it. So one of the big things I talk about, um, I believe it's principle three in the book is directness. Yes. And directness is the notion that, well, we've known through psychologists and, and literature, uh, uh, to the psycho- psychological literature, we've known for about a hundred years that Uh, people don't transfer skills very well. So if you teach them something in one context and you ask them to apply it in a seemingly parallel context, they often fail to do that. And this has been a real vexing problem for formal education because the whole idea of formal education is based on transfer. The whole idea is that I teach you something in a classroom and you can do something in real life. And the fact that that often is not the case is very troubling, to say the least. And so, you know, a good example of this, I've been I've been using this example, which I think is kind of funny, but I, I run a small business and uh, there was a point where we were having to charge sales tax, but our software couldn't handle it. So in Canada, where we are, you're supposed to add the sales tax on top. So if it's a dollar and the sales tax is 10%, you're supposed to charge a dollar and 10 cents. But we weren't doing that. We were only charging a dollar. And so at the end of the year, we have to figure out how much sales tax do we owe. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my uh, friends who was one of my associates who was working on the accounting he was like, "Well, you know, if it's 10%, we'll just take 10% of our sales and that will be what we remit to the tax government." And I was like, "Uh, actually, it's not that because it's, you know, you have to get the like the amount we had plus 0.1% is equal to the total sales. You have to do so a little bit of algebra to figure it out because you actually right. have to divide it by it's a little bit less than 10% yeah. because obviously, you know, 90% uh, that that 10% is now actually about 11% of the 90% right, so right. it's not actually working out correctly." Mm-hmm. And the funny thing was, is as soon as I wrote down on a piece of paper, this is actually the algebra you need to solve. He knew how to solve it immediately. And so, oh, well, obviously, that's the right way to do it. He knew how to do algebra, but he didn't transfer that knowledge to that situation. So he knew how to do it. He just didn't apply it there. And that's extremely common. So I'm not trying to pick on him. Right. But this is grade eight math. This isn't like super advanced calculus that he might have right. forgotten. This is something that he really knows. He just didn't apply. And so the principle of directness is really that because transfer is so difficult, particularly in the early phases of developing a skill, if you've really mastered something, it's easier to transfer it. But when you're starting out, the ultra learning approach is how do you make what you're doing in the beginning really resemble the thing you want to get good at so there's less transfer, so there's less difficulty moving it. And I go through a lot of different examples from language learning to you know, programming to art to all sorts of things where you can minimize this transfer distance and how you can change what you're learning to minimize that transfer distance. The challenge with schools and the reason they don't often do this is that they aren't really teaching you for a specific situation. So they're teaching you algebra not to deal with sales tax, but to deal with a more, you know, to everything that you might want to do. And the problem is that that's very hard to do. So I think it's very difficult for schools to adjust their approach based on what we think of schools doing. But the apprenticeship model and the model of, so ultra learning that I talk about in the book, I think can deal with some of those problems.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. They have a certain system in place and it can alter over time uh, into just a business kind of a manufactured thing. Now, one thing that comes to mind, I like the directness. I really like the concepts. So I'm going to be honest because sure, you can just go with them and do directness. For example, you're doing more of exactly what you would like to be doing, the recall, you're... What can I what can I think of without even these things would be nice at like the first two weeks of a of a class because you already be on the way. One thing that came to mind is there's no more directness than when you did videos online of your courses, physics, a bunch of them on YouTube. I watched some of them, which was kind of interesting. What are some things you took away from doing that directly and posting it online? Was there any commentary that came back and you felt? So you're out? talking cool.
1: about the um, the recent project I did for learning yeah. quantum mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that was a fun project because when I did the MIT challenge, this was again eight years ago. It's mm-hmm. funny how much has changed even since then. I mean, eight years isn't a super long time, but one mm-hmm. of the things is that we were talking about these MOOCs, these yeah. uh, massively open online courses. They didn't actually exist when I was planning the project. There was only open courseware, so oh. that was something that it was like you know, people are like, oh, why didn't you get like a certificate and do it through like edX or Coursera? Well, actually, those things didn't exist while I was doing that. So it was it's really a lot of things that have changed. And one of those things Mm -hmm. is people live streaming projects. And uh, one of the challenges I had definitely doing the MIT challenge is that I'd be studying all week, just, you know, learning this material. And then I got to share something, I got to share something about my approach, I got to set up the computer and record a video and scan stuff. And it was a lot of extra work on top of that. So it can be a little bit of a balance between documenting a project and publishing. it. obviously that's not super important for people who are just doing things for themselves, but as a blogger and someone who tries to show these these things, that was often an issue. And so live streaming really interested me because I was thinking, well, what if you didn't try to separate the two? Just the whole thing was being documented from start to finish. So uh, that one there was more of a test. I wouldn't say that it was like a grand, ambitious project. It was just you know, let's do this on something that I understand fairly well, which is taking MIT classes using their free online materials. And so I decided to do um, 804, which is their intro quantum physics class, uh, teaching this sort of first level of quantum mechanics. And I know it was a good class. I, I enjoyed doing it. And obviously the, the approach that I took there is very similar to what I would have done during the MIT challenge. Not exactly the same, but very similar of, you know, Going through the the lectures and working through the problems and then preparing for a test and and trying to build that sort of intuition and insight in a limited period of time.
0: Hmm. Yes, I like watching. The thing is, I have sometimes watched things that don't exactly uh, like. For example, I wasn't looking to learn the quantum mechanics as I was watching, <laughs> or a long time ago, uh, when I was watching, like in 2009. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk, the business guy. Yeah. I would watch his wine videos. I didn't drink, I still don't drink wine, but I like yeah. the content and the attitude behind it and getting somewhere mm-hmm. I like that concept. And then this one, you can see you went through it because it's funny after the fact to look at it a certain way, but who was doing that? Almost nobody. So it's worth taking it into account. I like to take into account yeah. these are special things, each thing. Now, a different category of learning that you have also excelled at and have looked at other people have done it is language learning Mm. what are some of the languages you have learned if i placed you in a new country right now how would you do it possibly
1: sure sure so i'll look at both those questions so um i would say that i am conversational, which admittedly is a rather vague definition. I I can talk a little bit more precisely about uh, ability levels, but there's always a risk when you talk about ability that you either grossly underrate your ability. So I had one thing where I was talking to some guy about languages I'd learned and he was like, so can you Uh, give directions in a taxi and I was like well you could do that in half an hour like I could teach you that right now in any language and you know with just a little bit of rehearsal it would take you about an hour and you could get it to almost you know a good enough degree so that's certainly not what I would consider conversational but on the other Mm -hmm. hand there's people who would you know they don't make those distinctions and so the fact that you're conversational people are like oh well you're totally fluent and then people who are actually fluent are like, well, no, wait a minute. You know, I've spent a decade getting you know to a PhD level in this language, and so clearly there's more work to be done. Right. So with that, with that kind of vagueness in mind, mm-hmm. I would say that I'm conversational in French, Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin Chinese, and uh, you could say Korean. I would say Korean, but it's a little bit, a little bit lower than the others. And uh, I also know a little bit of Macedonian, although I would not qualify it as conversational yet. It's just at the basic phrase level um and so I uh I started learning languages when I was in university I, my first experience learning language was French and this was actually a big motivator for me writing this book because what what happened is I went on exchange to France um and I was thinking great I'm gonna learn French I'm gonna be fluent in French and um I get there and I found out Actually, it's really hard to practice French. Uh, all my friends speak in English to me, including the French ones, and it just seems like you know I'm i have been there for several months, and it doesn't seem like I'm getting much better. And you know, like I'm working really hard, I'm studying really hard, but maybe maybe it's just a year isn't enough time. Maybe you actually need a lot more time than that to learn a language. And around this time, I met a gentleman named Benny Lewis, and he is quite famous online now these days for studying languages. But at the time, he was relatively unknown. Um, and I, I'm, I managed to meet up with him and sort of discuss strategies. And the thing that struck me was how he approached learning it is that he jumped into speaking right away. So whereas I was sort of timid and like, well, i got to wait till I'm ready to speak to people in French. Mm-hmm. He was like, definitely not ready. And he was speaking to people in whatever language he was learning. And that was a big motivator because he was sort of the first ultra learner that I'll call it a people who take on ambitious self-directed learning projects. That I covered in the book that he would teach himself these languages by traveling to country to country every three months. And so I did the MIT challenge and after that I was um, contemplating going on a trip with a, with a friend and I started talking about this experience of being like, you know what, I went to France and thanks to Benny's advice I do feel like I learned French uh, okay after that year long period of time but it was it was sort of like I know that there's so much more. So I know that if I had done it right from the beginning, if I had followed the right approach from the beginning, I could have made friends who spoke to me only in French. I would have been in immersion. I would have learned really quickly. I kind of screwed that up and I would would like to redo it. And I was telling him about this and I was getting him kind of interested in. So we kind of, through a lot of discussions, ended up coming up with this project I called The Year Without English. And what it was is that we went to four different countries, Spain, Brazil, China, and Korea. And the idea was that as soon as we land in the country we don't speak English we just speak the language that we're trying to learn even if that's through Google translate and dictionaries and stuff and the funny thing was is I found that after going through that experience that it's actually way easier to learn a language that way than the way I was learning it in France where I'm like struggling to get immersion and I'm studying a lot at home and that experience was really surprising for me because whenever I tell people about this so I, I tell people this, like no you got to do this this is what you got to do they're always saying to themselves oh that, that sounds really difficult well maybe i'll do that but maybe i'll wait until i get settled first and uh, that sounds kind of hard and i just want to like shake them i'm to say no, no no you're making a huge mistake it's way easier to do it this way and i've talked to people for instance when i was in south korea and i i knew a guy who had lived there for 13 years and he was constantly kind of like oh yeah I, i'd really like to learn korean but it's hard it's a really difficult language and he's not wrong and his situation is very common but what he's gotten for himself is he's built this whole social web around him that all speaks in English all the time and it's very difficult to break out of that and so what we found is that we went to Spain and yes it is a little frustrating and difficult in the first couple of weeks but for particularly for European languages you can often learn them to that kind of you know a little bit caveman style you're not really speaking super fluently but enough to communicate enough to talk with people and enough that they'll speak back to you in the language and help you out And it was enough so that in all the countries we were in, we were able to make friends, we were able to socialize, we were able to have active lives. So it wasn't like we were just, you know, cooped up and hiding from everyone because we couldn't speak the languages. And it was such a transformative experience for me that now when people ask me, how do I learn a language? This is the approach that I recommend. Now, not everyone can travel to learn a language. So you have to modify it if you're going to work it from home. But even if like you and your partner, for instance, you live with want to uh, learn, let's say a language like Italian, you could just say, okay, We're just going to have a no English rule between each other and we're just going to speak in Italian. And even that helps out immensely because the way to learn a language is to actually practice it, to use it. Uh, And if you want to become conversational, that means having conversations. And so this was a big part of my sort of understanding of the book and a big motivator for writing the book was that recognizing the way most people approach it is not only much less efficient, But it's actually harder. It's harder in the long run to do it that way. And so I wanted to encourage people, not only with languages, but with all sorts of skills to rethink how they approach things so that they could you know, get these kinds of results.
0: Mm -hmm. One thing that comes to mind is, um, has this opened up connection with individuals in a way that probably would not have occurred otherwise using their own language with them?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know what? It's For me, and I mean everyone travels for different reasons, so I don't want to say that, like, well, you have to learn languages because everyone has their own, like, you have to do this to travel. Like, people who do it this way are wrong. You can travel however you want. I've gone to places where I haven't learned the language. But I have gone to places where I have, and I've noticed a stark difference that when you go to a place and you speak in English, uh, well, especially if it's in Obviously, if you go to Australia or something, it's not an issue. But if you go to, let's say, China, or you go to Brazil, or you go to a country and you speak in English, you can often get by. I don't want to say that learning a language is necessary for traveling almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. However you're gonna have a very different experience because in the vast majority of the world, most people either do not speak English or they do not speak it very well. And so when you go, when you speak English, you're a tourist. When you go and you speak their language, you actually feel like you live there. You actually feel like you have connections with people. And so the big uh, thing that I got from um, doing these experiences is is that I have a deep connection to all of these countries and to the people that live, live there and to what's going on in a way that I don't in places like, let's say I I went to Germany and I didn't uh, learn German and I've been to Italy and I didn't learn Italian and I don't have that same connection. And so I -hmm. think one of the reasons we do travel is to, you know, see another part of the world, see things through fresh eyes, to see something different than we have at home. And I think language learning is really just opens that window because you get to have actual conversations with people who, you would never have had conversations with if you only spoke in English. So it is something that I admit doing this kind of travel is not something uh, available to everyone. But even for me now, I do I, I do continually maintain these languages through little Skype lessons that I have I book through um, the service um, Italki.com. That's Italki.com, and. Uh, I have these little conversations with people where I, you know, get to find out what's happening in their country, what's happening in their lives, what's their perspective on things. And so it's a little bit like mini travel that I get this kind of window into, you know, what's going on in Brazil right now or what's going on in Korea right now or what's going on in some of these other places in the world. So even if you don't get to travel, I think languages are a way of traveling, a way of experiencing new things.
0: Mm -hmm. They're definitely broadening. Nice feature to use such a website. One thing you pointed out. Uh, a little bit ago was the person that said, oh, it's a little bit hard. I need more time. Or you would think, like, I was here yeah. a few months, but maybe I just need more time. Is there any situation where actually that makes sense, where you need more time, or is it
1: most likely you're not doing the right Method. Well, so the book, the way I, I, you know, there's always situations for everything. so i don't want to I don't want to say this is a universal um, idea. The idea of ultra learning is that for most people, we want to wait until we're ready to use something because we're afraid of negative feedback. We're afraid of getting an answer wrong, afraid of not using it. And I go through a lot of science, which shows that, for instance, with the concept of retrieval, if you get students to um, study, If they don't feel ready, they're mostly going to review, meaning they're going to reread their notes if they don't feel ready. Only if they really feel ready will they optionally select to do what we call retrieval, which is to test yourself to try to remember what came up in the class or the lecture. But it turns out if you force students to do that retrieval, if you force them to do it, so you can't review, you have to do free recall, they will end up learning the material better than if they do the review. Now, this is just a small example, but I found numerous situations where if you... You force yourself to do the somewhat harder thing, you actually get a lot better results. And so language learning, I think, is definitely a situation where most people wait way too long to start practicing it. Um, Most people think that you need to actually know things to practice speaking a language. You don't, you can actually pull up your phone, get Google Translate and just read stuff off and and get people to type for you and, and translate it. And you can interact with people that way. Now, is that ideal? Is that the ideal starting point? I think that from my own personal experience, that's doing that from the very zero experience. So if I was going to learn, I don't know, Mongolian right now, which I don't know a single word, and I pulled up Google translate and was doing Mongolian. That would not necessarily be the most efficient approach. I do find that having some foundation makes it a little bit easier. Now, I'm very hesitant to say this because every single person, what they think the foundation you need is much, much larger than the actual foundation you need. And so what I typically recommend is, What I talk about in chapter three, which is, or sorry, uh, principle three, which is directness, is always start with the real situation you want to apply, even if you're not ready yet. Because even if you're not ready yet, that activity will still be a placeholder so that when you are ready, when you can maximally use it, you're already in it and you're not waiting too long. So we're talking about languages right now, which would mean do a little bit of conversation, even if it's not very fruitful, from the very first day even if you're doing some studying, which is maybe a little bit more useful for that first little bit, just because then you're gonna get into actually applying it quite quickly. Whereas the opposite where you spend a lot of time studying and then you go to apply it and then you have transfer problems, that won't happen. But this is true more than just languages. You wanna learn programming, Start by trying to program something you care about. And yeah, if you can't quite do it, that's fine. And you need to work through the exercises to get you to that point, that's fine. If you start from, I'm going to build a little like, you know, text game or I'm going to build a little like thing that is going to be fun for me, um, that will get you going more than if you just work through exercises as they're prescribed. So there's a, a lot of generality to this approach. And one of the things I wanted to do is that often we have an experience of learning something specific. And, you know, you've maybe gotten through your engineering classes in college and you know how to study engineering. You know how to learn that thing. But then when it comes to learning French, you're like, well, I don't know how to do this. Or learning dancing or learning photography. You're like, oh, who knows, right? And so what I've tried to do in this book is. These are actually the principles that if you see it in the things that you've learned well, oh, yeah, I was doing that when I learned these things well, then now I want you to see it in the things that maybe you haven't learned well in the past or that you're afraid of learning or that you have to learn in the future or even just, you know what, I was learning well, but I could tweak these things a little bit more and get even better. So that, that was sort of my goal in writing this book.
0: Mm-hmm. I like a couple of the points you brought up, one about the foundation individuals thinking they need a bigger foundation mm-hmm. than they actually need. I like to I've probably been the most sociable person in Los Angeles for the past some years and I have friends that they're not as much and they'll always yeah. sometimes find reasons like well I need a this or I should I should know them or it needs to be part of and it's not the case. And then the the other point you bring up, I like that connecting off of what you like or your strengths, something you wanted to, I wanted to make this program, let's say. Mm-hmm. So I tried programming before, but I didn't really have a thing I wanted to program. I was just wanting to learn the code, kind of. Yeah. That doesn't work too well. But if you have like a thing where I would like to make this Pong or something, then you're motivated to go through the process, which is a nice feature there. Mm-hmm. I like those two points. Now, one thing I want to bring up here is I sort of think of you as sort of when I think of Cal Newport, because you guys have yeah. depth and focus on ability. Uh, he wrote Deep Work and his most recent book. Which for Digital minimalism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great books. And so I wanted to bring up in relation to that your view on distractions currently. Uh, do you even get affected at all? I feel like you're in a good place <laughs> of momentum, so I can't picture it. But how do you view the distraction space? So I have
1: a whole I have a whole chapter of the Ultra Learning book, which is devoted to one of the principles that I I titled focus. Mm -hmm. and focus uh, when i started doing research for that chapter i was very interested in it from like a cognitive perspective i was thinking like well is there like some way to optimize your attention what's the relation between attention and learning and i dug through a ton of research um turns out attention is not as well understood as a cognitive phenomenon as let's say memory for instance so there's not quite as much like really interesting research that i can bring up there there is some interesting stuff about the level of um alertness and how you learn things but one of the things that I, I realized as first reading this is that actually managing these kind of fine cognitive details of attention, not important. For most people, the main problems are, I procrastinate too much, I start working on something hard and I quit too early, I get distracted, I pull out my phone, or, you know, I, I know I, I wanna start, well, like what we were talking about, your friends that you know I know I should be doing x but oh I'm afraid of doing that I'm not doing this so for me what I realized in writing this focus chapter is that focus is much more about the emotional end of things than it is about the cognitive It's, it's much more about how do I feel about doing this rather than how am I how am I using my mental tools to actually process this and as I was digging through this and looking at a lot of different sources of research one of the things that kind of came to me is that a lot of the problem is that when you have an aversion to doing something and learning is often frustrating. You know, I I love learning things, but I often get frustrated learning things. I'm often, ooh, I don't know whether I wanna start doing this because I'm gonna be embarrassed or I'm gonna feel bad or or whatever. So there's always gonna be some maybe hesitation to learning and that can create procrastination. And so what what I talk about in the book is a lot of different tools for sort of dealing with that. And one of them is just simply to notice when you are doing that. So notice when you are saying to yourself, like your friends were making an excuse to say, well, no, actually, I need to do this and this. Well, that's really just a rationalization. What 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 is really happening is that scares me and I don't want to do that. And I'm looking for any reason I can come up with that will justify me not doing that. And so what I find is better is instead of just saying to yourself, well, If you don't have a reason, then you should do it and you should feel really guilty that you didn't do it. But just recognize, you know what? Actually, I am a bit afraid of doing this. I am a bit afraid of speaking this language for the first time. I am a bit afraid of practicing recall and and realizing that I don't know anything for this test. I'm a bit afraid of doing a practice test right now for this subject that I, I don't feel I understand very well. And once you recognize that that's what you're dealing with, then you can start working through coping mechanisms. So, okay, I'm too afraid to speak to someone right now, but maybe I can just, you know, Uh, get a tutor here and practice a conversation. Maybe that would be a bit better if, if that's a bit too uncomfortable. Or maybe I'm afraid of doing this sort of free recall. But what if I just, you know, expect to fail and just like, you know, lower my expectations so I don't actually have to do very well. So there's all sorts of like little coping mechanisms you can do to get forward, but only once you stop being in denial about your own procrastination. And the same is true with distraction, that a lot of times we get distracted because, oh, well, it was my phone. It grabbed me and forced me to do it. Well, you can turn your phone off. You can, you know, if your phone pings, you can ignore it. If you, if these things happen, you can't ignore it. But the problem is that what's really happening is actually working on this essay is really frustrating or actually learning this programming. I can't debug it and it keeps having bugs and I'm getting super frustrated and I want to stop right now. And so I think it's that meta awareness of actually, this is what's going on. And it's okay to feel bad. It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel overwhelmed with something and just be like, you know, that's how I'm feeling. And maybe I can take a break. Maybe I should do something, but realize that's what I'm doing is because I'm feeling bad about this and I'm trying to avoid it, or I'm trying to quit. And I think once you make that awareness again, then all sorts of strategies come up of, well, maybe I'll just work on it for five minutes, you know, just five minutes. That's fine. I'll do that or maybe I'll come up with little rules to get over some of the little frustration humps. So one of the examples that I I had for myself is that I did a lot of learning, particularly for Chinese, when I had to memorize things uh, was with flashcards. And often what would happen is I would get a flashcard wrong. So it would come up and it would be an old flashcard and I get it wrong. And I'm using a system called Anki, which is a space repetition system. So whenever you have an old thing that you get wrong, it like resets the timer and it can be very discouraging. Like you've been working on this thing for you've, if you got it right, it would be like, okay, remind me in nine months and you got it wrong. So now it's going to be like in your queue again. And it can be a little bit frustrating, (laughs) even though it works, even though the algorithm works. And so when I would get a question wrong, my instinct would be like, ah, put this away, right? Like I'm frustrated. I don't want to put this away. So I made a rule for myself whenever I got, I I could only quit when I'd gotten one right. And the funny thing was, is as soon as you get one wrong, you're like, all right, next one. And you get it right that feeling to quit goes away. So it was an extremely temporary urge to quit. And if I just make that rule, I could get over it. And so what I want people to do when they're thinking about focusing, about getting distracted, in learning and in other things, is to just start with that. You want to get out of denial first. You want to start with, how do I actually admit to myself that I'm procrastinating because this thing scares me? And that's okay to admit to yourself. It's okay to say, you know what, I'm having a hard time working on this because doing this terrifies me and then how do I make it terrify me less rather than well actually I'm not ready to speak and that's why I'm this is this is the right thing to do is that I need to study for another six months or or really I shouldn't be practicing free recall because I don't actually know it so that's you know once you can get out of that denial once you can get out of those excuses then you can start working on the actual problem
0: Mm -hmm. yes you have to acknowledge the person and then move beyond that one thing I like So the book is broken into nine principles Uh, i like that you can look at the ones you do well on and maybe you're already doing them like for example number nine about experimentation i do that quite a bit also i do tutoring so i was it was cool to see some of these things that i do which a teacher Mm -hmm. probably wouldn't do with 30 students but i'm able to do like one-on-one or Mm one-on-two it's a nice feature and then you can see the ones that uh, maybe you don't do as much and decide, okay these four principles that's my focus. the other five I can leave uh behind behind for now because yeah. that's my category. I like that feature. they that broke it into elements uh, also an unconventional education you have done that that's the the last chapter. I like that feature. It doesn't have to be conventional, and it's becoming more able to be accepted and who even cares about acceptance? I don't know what we're doing here, but we want results and good uh understanding, so that's the uh the main point there. I like what you're bringing to the space. What is mm-hmm. a message? If you had a megaphone, that you would tell all people um, that represents what you would want them to know. What?
1: Well, so I think the message that I would like to leave people with, and this has sort of been the big inspiration for writing this book, is that you know, you know, you can learn for practical reasons. And I wrote this book because I know people have learning challenges. They not only just the ones in school, but there's things that they've wanted to get better at in their work, in their, and, and they're not quite sure how to do it. And I wanted to write this book with a practical view in mind. But the reason that I chose ultra learning, the reason that I focus on a lot of these stories is that for me, for instance, going through um, things like the MIT challenge, they were not just experiences that allowed me to learn some skill. They weren't just, OK, I spent that time, and I got some computer science. Because what going through this process did for me was that it really expanded my sense of possibility for myself. That once I did that, it was like, oh, wow, was I wrong? of all these things that I couldn't do before when if I just thought about them differently, could I do them differently? And you know, the language learning experience was a perfect one is that when I was in France, I would often beat myself up for not doing this or that right. And I just realized, no, 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 I just didn't set it up right. And once I set it up right, I could do it really well. And so the thing I want people to leave with and what I want to encourage them to do if they if they read ultra learning and, and they try their own projects is that the point of learning is and the point of life really is not just to acquire some practical skill or knowledge but it's really an expansion of possibility because when you learn something new when you overcome something when you are able to do something you weren't able to do before the feeling you're left with is what could I do now? Who could I become? What could be from uh, different in my life? And so that's really what I want to leave with in this book. And that would be the megaphone that I would shout out my message is that the world is a lot more understandable and learnable than you think, that the things that you think you're bad at, you could become good at if you put in the right approach. And that for a lot of people, they box themselves in in this little box of this is what I'm good at. This is who I am. And it's in this box. And the The approach that I would like people to take is, you know what, how could we expand that box for you But How could we get you outside of that box to see that actually there's a lot of things that you could do that you could be confident with that could fill your life with uh, confidence and meaning?
0: This is wonderful. It is an expansive view. I like it. It is not common. I have to point these things out because it's not common. I always compare. There's a few individuals saying things that I really resonate with. These things are not common, but yes, we won't have an expansive view. We can do more. And uh, these provide some, there's some methods in this book for how to do that. I like what you're doing, what you've continued to do. You don't need to write articles. Sometimes we think about that. Certain people that make content, you could probably stop tomorrow and be just fine. But it's something that's Mm -hmm. out there and causes a huge change, especially now we have all the connection between people that you can't really. You can quantify it in some numbers, but a full mm-hmm. sense of it. I will recommend to the people this book, Ultra Learning. Simple title, one word, which is great. And then it has the uh, words underneath. I hope they check it out. I'll put links to it. And I am glad to have had you on this episode of the show.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Armin. And if, uh, if anyone wants to check out my website as well, I've got a lot of articles at scotthyoung.com.
0: Well, I will link that. And we are out.